0: Can I just say one thing first before you show yeah. it?
1: Okay, this is Spike Lee on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, June 8th, 2020.
0: Ray Rahim is a fictional character for my film Do The Right Thing, but his murder is based upon the real life murder of Michael Stewart, who's a graffiti artist here in New York City, 1983. So that's where I got that deal for the murder of Ray, Ray Rahim. Really, where he was choked to, to yeah, death. That was...
1: Came from Michael Stewart. So then Spike Lee shows a clip, this short film he made called Three Brothers, Where he intermingles footage captured from real-life police killings with images from his movie, Do the Right Thing. So you see clips from the real-life amateur videos of the police killings of Eric Garner in 2014 and George Floyd in 2020, spliced between clips from the climactic fictional murder of Radio Raheem in Do the Right Thing. (laughs) It's not the first time Spike Lee has juxtaposed his fiction with reality. Back in 2014. He made another online video where he intercut Eric Garner's murder with Radio Raheem's. These supercuts of, of Black Death force you to see the relentlessness of the kind of injustice Lee's 1989 film spoke to. The systemic racism, the police brutality, those issues remain 30 plus years later. That's the timeless quality of Do the Right Thing. But as Lee points out, the film also wasn't created in a historical vacuum. It was an urgent and timely snapshot of race relations in New York City in the 1980s. And it was directly inspired by Michael Stewart's death at the hands of police and by other stories of racist violence and police brutality that nearly split the city in two. And understanding that story, the story of the racial climate of New York in the 80s, that is key in understanding the considerable power of Do the Right Thing. So that's the story we're here to tell today. To help us tell it, we have New York Times op-ed culture editor Aisha Harris. Let me turn off my notifications. We have making-rent and bedsty author Brandon Harris. I blocked off the hour, man. We have indie film guru John Pearson. Are you absolutely positively sure that that's true? And we have Rolling Stone senior writer Jamil Smith.
2: Oh, I got a whole story. I got a whole story for that.
1: I'm Jason Bailey, and this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it.
3: The city of New York, we've got a system. Not much, but we're fond of it. I love this dirty town. God,
4: I hate this town.
3: Welcome to New York. What will happen to Bits and if everybody ran around and did their own fucking thing, huh? You want to live in a toilet like Manhattan or the Bronx? They say you were going to drive me home. To the Bronx? Are you out of your mind? Well, oh, what kind of a life
0: is this? Where the hell do you want to move to? This goddamn city.
5: Fun City Cinema by Jason Bailey and Mike Hull.
3: You just flush it right down the fucking toilet. Man, I'm walking here. Good there's a lot of crazy fucks in this town
1: i'm not leaving
2: you people can keep
4: this city we're trying to run a city not a goddamn democracy
3: well mr mayor if you wanted new york known as fun city i think you're gonna get your wish <laughs>
1: The problem with telling stories about New York is that it's hard to know where to begin because every story is so connected. It's like a a series of cigarettes lit off the butt of their predecessors. You eventually just have to give up and choose a starting point and go. So we'll start this story. For those
2: of us who waited through the long night
1: with the story of the blackout.
2: Dawn on the morning of July the 14th was a welcome sight the blackness of a starless night was slowly illuminated by a bright sun. But the light of day didn't improve what we saw. It brought home the sickening reality that some New Yorkers had taken advantage of the city's blindness. They ran through the streets in an orgy of robbery and arson. It's impossible to describe the pandemonium on the streets of Harlem, the South Bronx, or Bushwick. At
1: 837 on the night of July 13th, 1977, a lightning strike in nearby Westchester County tripped a circuit breaker and that prompted a domino effect all the way down the state's electrical grid. The power was out in all five boroughs by 9.34 p.m. By the time full power was restored, about 25 hours later, police had arrested 3,776 people, more than 1,600 stores were damaged or looted, 1,037 fires had been set, nearly 100 police officers had been injured on the job. The city had hit bottom, basically, in the full view of the nation. The mayor, Abraham Beam, proclaimed, We've seen our citizens subjected to violence, vandalism, theft,
0: and discomfort. The blackout has threatened our safety and has seriously impacted our economy. We've been needlessly subjected to a night of terror in many communities that have been wantonly looted and burned.
1: And the blackout was just one element of a summer in Gotham that was so eventful, Spike Lee would later make a movie about it. 1999 Summer of Sam.
4: This film is about a different time, a different place. The good old days. The hot, blistering summer of 1977. There are 8 million stories in the Naked City, and this was one of them.
1: Aside from the blackout, the city was terrorized by the Son of Sam serial killings, was also still reeling from a financial crisis that took the city to the brink of bankruptcy and led to massive cuts to social services. And New York was in the midst of a Democratic mayoral primary, one of the most contentious in its history, and one that amounted to a de facto general election, as the Republican nominee so rarely won. Now, the financial crisis that happened on Mayor Beam's watch pretty much ensured that he was in for an embarrassing loss. But the roster of his challengers struggled to find the right tone for their response to the blackout-related crimes. Congressman Ed Koch, an underdog mounting his second campaign for mayor, decided to stake a claim.
0: We disgraced ourselves. The mayor did a lousy job. There should have been a curfew in the riot areas. The National Guard, in my judgment, should have been alerted and brought in.
1: Other candidates tried to strike a more liberal balance, acknowledging the lawlessness of the looting while also interrogating its causes, specifically the deep cuts to the social safety net that had left citizens of those communities so vulnerable and so desperate. Congressman Koch would hear none of it.
3: I mean, there is no excuse for looting, and I hope you agree with me on that. Yeah, in a way I do, yeah. Not in a way. You should say, I agree with you, not in a way, but
1: completely. That response was a part and parcel of his law and order campaign. And and to be clear, this was a candidate who was really a Democrat in name only. I mean, he made his desire to bring back the death penalty one of his cornerstone issues, which, by the way, the death penalty is an issue over which the mayor of New York City holds like no policy sway whatsoever. He was anti-union. He opposed school busing. He backed the homeowners of Forest Hills, Queens, in their campaign against a public housing unit set for construction in their neighborhood. He said he understood their, quote, rational fear of increased crime and loss of property values. You know, he, he spent a lot of the campaign speaking in that kind of coded language to appeal to working class white voters. And by staking out that territory in the mushy middle... He was able to take early advantage of a nationwide swing towards conservatism, which would put Ronald Reagan in the White House three years later. It also won him the endorsement of the New York Post, which was then under the new leadership of an Australian media tycoon named Rupert Murdoch. So Koch won the primary, and then he won a runoff against future New York governor Mario Cuomo. After that victory, New York Daily News columnist Pete Hamill wrote from a Bushwick still all but smoldering from the blackout
3: This is the city that Ed Koch will have to cure. A city abandoned, a city unrepresented, a city cynical. The ruined and broken city. Mayor Koch
1: did not cure it. I
0: want to explain, you have to understand, it makes no difference at all whether you shout or not. You have to understand that. It doesn't move me. It doesn't change me.
1: It's genuinely hard to overstate the degree to which Koch and his administrations, three in total, from 1977 to 1989, stoked racial divisions in New York City. It began early, with his 1980 decision to close Sydenham Hospital, which had served mostly African-American patients and employed African-American doctors, in Harlem since 1892. Koch claimed... It was a cost-cutting measure.
0: Do you think that I should give in to symbolism and, and throw away nine million dollars in desperately needed medical dollars for a symbol??
1: So protesters seized the hospital and occupied it for 10 days.
0: of the Health and
1: Hospitals Corporation. Koch ultimately succeeded in closing Sydenham's doors, but in doing so, he destroyed his relationship with the city's black leadership because he had promised them he would keep the facility open. Yet on this and on other matters of race, he just dug in his heels.
0: I think uh, that there is a great deal of uh, ill will and distrust uh, simply because I happen to be white.
1: No question about that these issues of race were constant under mayor koch during his first term an old interview appeared in which he insisted that african americans were quote basically anti-semitic and quote whites are basically anti-black end quote he opposed making dr martin luther king jr's birthday a city holiday he cited fiscal concerns when bernard getz shot four black youths on a new york subway Claiming self-defense, Koch publicly supported the so-called subway vigilante's acquittal for attempted murder. And in questions of brutality, of harassment, and of murder, he always had the back of the police.
3: The dope has sent a message to the cops last week and they shot him in the car where he sat. And Eleanor Bumpus, Michael Stewart, must have appreciated that. There's a...
1: New York City Transit Police arrested 25-year-old Michael Stewart in the First Avenue L train station early in the morning of September 15, 1983. They claimed he was scrawling graffiti on the station wall. They also claimed he resisted arrest and attempted to escape from custody, so they hogtied him in Union Square and took him to Bellevue Hospital, where he lapsed into a coma and died 13 days later. The initial autopsy report insisted Stewart died of a heart attack, unrelated to his arrest. But a month later, the same medical examiner retracted and revised that autopsy and attributed Stewart's death to physical injury to the spinal cord in the upper neck, noting bruises and other injuries consistent with choking or strangulation. A total of six officers were brought to trial on charges related to Michael Stewart's death, and all six were acquitted by an all-white jury. On October 29, 1984, police shot and killed Eleanor Bumpers, a mentally ill African-American woman, when she wielded a kitchen knife at officers dispatched to assist in her eviction from her apartment in a Bronx housing project. She owed $88 in past due rent. According to the Village Voice's Saul Stern,
3: Mayor Koch was uncharacteristically contrite when he went before a black audience in Harlem last month and admitted there had been a terrible foul-up in his administration. It was unthinkable, Koch acknowledged, that a mentally disturbed 67-year-old woman should have been shot to death in an eviction proceeding. The mayor was even willing to entertain the thought that the violent outcome might have had something to do with the fact that Mrs. Bumpers was black. We'll never know, he said.
1: Nevertheless, Mayor Koch supported the grand jury's refusal to indict the police officer who killed Eleanor Bumpers. And that was the environment in which Spike Lee conceived Do the Right Thing.
0: Two socks, two socks, We fight out. We fight out. We
1: fight out. So this is how moviegoers first met Spike Lee.
0: Hi, I'm Spike Lee. Well, I'm not directing. I do this. It pays the rent, puts food on the table, butter on my whole wheat bread. Anyway, I had this new comedy coming out. It's a very funny film. She's gotta have it.
1: Check this out. The 1986 film She's Gotta Have It was the first feature length theatrical release from the filmmaker born Shelton Jackson Lee in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1957. He was the son of a jazz musician raised in Brooklyn. He attended Morehouse College as an undergrad and got his MFA from New York University's Graduate Film School.
0: You know, Nolan, you've done me wrong. Please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 please.
1: Spike Lee wrote, produced, directed, edited, and co-starred in She's Got a Habit which was shot in two weeks over the summer of 1985 on a $175,000 budget raised with grants and loans. It was a critical and commercial success because it was good. It was also well-timed, coming at the beginning of a new wave of American independent film and of African-American film.
6: You know, it was predominantly with a Black thing.
1: This is John Pearson, the legendary producer's rep. Uh, see, for years, he discovered new films and filmmakers and connected them with distributors to get those movies seen. Among the films he repped, Parting Glances, Roger and Me, The Thin Blue Line,
6: Clerks, Go Fish, and She's Gotta Have It. So it's like, it's a really good example of um, those early, everybody talks about it now, but it was much easier and clearer to point it out then. It was like, identity politics was a huge thing in movies, uh, because you literally had nothing. You know, you literally couldn't see yourself on screen, those early gay films. You know, I was involved with Parting Glance, the same thing. You really, literally couldn't see yourself until the people like Spike came along. And that's a big deal. That's a really big deal in that early history. People who got who got there first. And it wasn't only just the first one, but I mean, the earlier you were, if you had something that was entertaining, which, I, you know, She's Gotta Have it. It's Not a Perfect Film, but it's a very entertaining film. It really found a black audience that was not being served by, you know, and even black exploitation films were pretty much over by then. So there was nothing.
1: And because Lee not only made the film, but co-starred in it, in the scene-stealing comic relief role of a B-Boy bicycle messenger named Mars Blackman, he became something of a public celebrity in a way that was rare for independent filmmakers. That public awareness blew up even more when Nike hired Lee to direct a series of Air Jordan ads in which he reprised the Mars character.
0: Yo, Mars Blackman here with my main man, Michael Jordan. Yo, Mike, what makes you the best player in the universe? Is it the Vicious stunt. No
6: Mars. It's a trademark for much of independent American film history to have you know, just somebody, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, behind the film and oftentimes appearing on screen in the film like him or Michael Moore or whatever, you know, as your as your spokesperson. And yes, yeah, Spike was just a naturally gifted and savvy about that, even though, again, I'll go to my grave trying to tell people how shy he, he was and is. It's just hard for, and tongue-tied too, by the way. It's uh, it's really people just hear him and see him, and they can't imagine this could be true. It's probably hard for
4: white Americans to grasp the idea of having kind of like a sole public representative in a certain medium be have such an outsized public persona and mainstream awareness.
1: This is Brandon Harris, author of the book Making Ren in bed
4: Because there's like, you know, like dozens of famous white film directors at any given moment. But there came a point in the early 90s, almost entirely because Spike starred in many of his own films at that point, that Spike Lee was this like massive celebrity, you know, and like the, obviously the Jordan commercials and the, the various other sort of branding impresario stuff that he did, I think only aided that. That was the circumstance when I was coming of age. I, I I don't think you would talk to a single other figure in cinema who is an African American came of age in that space who wouldn't say the same that you know Spike's just like the you know the the standard bearer.
1: He followed up. She's Got to Have It with School Days, a Columbia Pictures release, a collegiate musical comedy based on his years at Morehouse. Do the Right Thing was his third film, and when it came out, and even to this day a fair number of film writers described it as his first political film. Aisha Harris disagrees.
5: Yeah, no. I mean, I don't think he's ever not made a political movie.
1: Aisha Harris is an op-ed and culture editor for the New York Times.
5: No, I mean, if you look at his his previous features before that, before do the right thing, she's got to have it and uh, school days totally totally every like every scene is dripping with politics it's just they are movies that don't deal with whiteness quite in the same way so i think maybe that's why a lot of critics think that like school days is all about like sort of intramural racism and colorism and then she's got to Have It has you know basically hardly any white characters and it's mostly just about a woman having sexual freedom so i can see why people would say that but they're wrong
1: Part of that framing at the time Do the Right Thing was released was because Spike Lee was not yet considered, you know, a a firebrand or a provocateur. In fact, much to his chagrin, he was often compared to Woody Allen, another diminutive, bespectacled New York filmmaker who often
6: appeared in his own films and at Knicks games. Even as She's Got a Habit was wildly succeeding, I mean, he he was always thinking next film. He was always thinking, I want to be a regular year in, year out, terms of approach to the the job so to speak you know like Woody Allen don't call me black Woody Allen on the other hand yeah I want to ma- I want to make a film every year like Woody Allen though and then for at least uh 10 years he had I mean he had a decade's worth of, of stories that were I, don't, I wouldn't say every single one of them was worked out and pent up inside of him but like they were pretty you know I would say for a decade they were pretty much coming out like straight from his gut straight from his heart
1: On his early films, Lee would release a companion book that included the screenplay, and photos, storyboards, and the journal he kept during writing and production. And the journal for Do the Right Thing is fascinating because he didn't initially envision the police murder and subsequent riot that ends the film. The first few pages are just devoted to the idea of, you know, the hottest day of the summer, one block in Brooklyn, character sketches, other general ideas. It was only when real life began to intrude on his process that he decided he would be, in his words, a fool not to work the subject of racism into the film.
0: The incident that really prompted this, this film was uh, the Howard Beach incident. Three black men coming home from work. The car has a flat in them. Um, Howard Beach section of Queens, and they go into this pizzeria. I think, I think it was called the New World Pizzeria. You know, they use a phone to call Triple A, and they chased out of the pizzeria by a gang of young bat-wielding Italian-American youths, and one of the guys running away runs, I think it was a BQE, and gets hit by a car.
1: So that was really an impetus for uh, for do-the-right thing. And so there was an overt political aim for Do the Right Thing, which he explains on the film's Blu-ray audio commentary.
0: You don't like public enemy, man? The shit's dope.
2: I'm dying. You notice that graffiti says,
0: crazy. dump cops. Like
2: we knew shooting this film in the
0: summer of 88 would come out in the summer of 89. And that September was going to be the Democratic runoff for Mayor New York City. And we were all hoping, not all, but a lot of us were hoping that David Dinkins would become the first African-American mayor of New York City. That's why he had that whole dumb Koch thing. Also, it was my opinion, I think that Mayor Koch was responsible for a lot of the high racial polarization in New York City. Mayor Koch, in my opinion, was responsible for that.
1: I wanna bring in my co-host Mike Hole here to to drill down on this a little bit more because you know, I mentioned the specific victims of police brutality that Spike Lee most often mentions as inspiration for the film. But what Lee is talking about here is this well, it was a, a culture of of racial division and tension and grievance in New York in the nineteen eighties, right?
3: Yeah. New York is a global capital of media, so there's an outsized focused on the city anyway, right? They're just coming out of a series of strikes and talk about the city going bankrupt. You know, it had been a tough time and different people are exploiting it
1: for their own purposes.
3: Not least of which was the Australian guy you mentioned earlier, who really has only ever had one speed, you know.
1: All right. Howard Beach is another one of the specific tragedies that Spike Lee cites for inspiring Do the Right Thing, both in terms of the violence at its climax and the general tension that's sort of present throughout. Tell me more about what happened at Howard Beach.
3: Howard Beach is a neighborhood in Queens. Michael Griffith was in a car with friends when they got a flat tire. This is 1986, so it's before cell phones, right? So Griffith and two of his friends walk through the neighborhood to a pizza shop. They want to use the phone, so they call Tow Truck or whatever. Help of some kind, you know. While they're in the pizza shop, a bunch of white dudes show up with baseball bats and shit and let them know they're not welcome in the neighborhood. One of Griffith's friends escaped, but the group of guys, like 10 or 20 of these guys, beat up Michael Griffith and his other friend. So when Griffith was trying to escape from the group, he got hit by a car, and that's what killed him. So he wasn't beaten to death by the mob, but the mob caused his death nonetheless. The thing is, the reason it was a big deal to Spike Lee and why we're still talking about it now, literally right now in this show, is because it was openly racial. Like, Michael Griffith wasn't allowed in Howard Beach because he was black. That's it. That was the whole justification. Right. And he was one of three black men who was killed by a white mob in New York in the 1980s, including Willie Turks, who was killed in a very similar situation in 1982, and Yusuf Hawkins, who was killed just weeks after Do the Right Thing came out in 1989. So in addition to all the other forms of racism inherent in our systems, right, there's three black men who were essentially lynched in New York City in the 1980s. So yeah, racial tension was already high. And then you have these flare ups that brought attention to the problem.
1: And I think it's also important in terms of historical framing to note that earlier in 1989, which is the year the Do the Right Thing came out, we had another crime story in New York with a pronounced racial component, which was the arrest of the Central Park Five.
3: Yes, and we all know that situation was being stoked not just by bloodthirsty media and different interest groups, but a very specific real estate developer who for some reason thought he deserved to have an opinion on the subject right this is a case where five black kids are accused of raping a woman in central park which they did not do yeah they are arrested they're tried by the media they're railroaded through the system and end up doing significant jail time for a crime they didn't commit just literally just because people thought they could have It's one of the worst crimes you can accuse a person of committing. And it plays on all these old stereotypes of black men existing as an inherent threat to white women. So the whole thing is like culturally designed to play up people's fear, you know.
1: Well, and it's a period where a lot of these assumptions are being made. Like New York City is already a pressure cooker, I think, in ways that even big cities with their own racial strife in this decade, like Boston and L.A. and Chicago, weren't. Just like because of what NYC is, like it's a lot of people in this compact, finite piece of land with a lot of shared spaces on sidewalks and buses and subways. And when people start looking at each other sideways and making those assumptions, it can escalate like quickly. And when the man who runs the city is among those making these assumptions in the things he says and the things he does and the policy he makes with regard to black citizens, like that's going to feed into that.
3: Mayors routinely support the police, right? You expect that. But Koch comes out backing Bernie Getz. Like, this is fucking just like some asshole with a six shooter. You know, fuck that guy, right? But when the mayor says he should be acquitted, what you're saying is that what he did was right. You're encouraging random people to shoot black teenagers at that point. Mm -hmm. But like you said before, he's, he's using established electoral theory, right? He's basically bringing the Southern strategy of national politics to the five boroughs. And it all fits into this tradition of weaponizing white fear for political gain without giving the first fuck about the outcome for the black people they're demonizing. Right. We have this tradition, right, where new waves of immigrants come to the United States and they spend like a generation or two struggling under the same stereotypes we're still applying to new immigrants now. But over a generation or two, they work their way out of that image. Italians and Howard Beach being a good example, and they become politicians and police officers they become the enforcers of the same social codes that once kept them down, right? And a lot of times they become the most zealous enforcers. So black people, and most American black people didn't immigrate here. Most American black people were brought here against their will and enslaved. And yet somehow they're the only group of people who has never been allowed as a group to get out from under that shadow. And it's not like some, like one guy just decided it. It's been a national effort that has been ongoing for hundreds of years. The other thing you see is black people being a constant fount of creativity in this country, right? And generation after generation, they've reinvented our popular culture. And then you see white people taking these new forms, whether it's tap dance or jazz music or literature, styles, clothes, rock and roll, whatever. The list goes on and on. White people reformat this stuff and dumb it down for a national audience, and then they get rich from it. And as black creators saw this pattern over and over, I think they sharpened their expression of their perspective until it became, like, basically impossible for white people to steal from them. Yeah. Right? So by the time you get to hip-hop culture, to this day, there have barely been any white people who have been able to communicate in that medium in a way that feels authentic. Almost none. And I think that's by design. Like, if you think about the markers of hip-hop, you're talking about two turntables, right? That's happening in a park. That's a public display of a very specific, complicated ability and if you're going to do it, you have to go to where it's happening and learn it on the spot from the people who are making it up and reinventing it and and making it live and breathe, right? You have to be a part of that culture to learn how to do it. Yeah. Graffiti, same thing. Anybody can go just like spray paint some shit. But the culture of tagging that grew up was a brand new kind of art that no one had ever seen before. It's built on new thinking, hard work love for the art, concentration. It's like a whole new form of expression. And if you wanted to do it, you had to go hop some fences and lose a shoe in the train yard. You had to be a part of it, right? And the boombox was part of that whole thing. Not only do we have hip hop now, but I'm taking it with me. I'm taking it on the train. I'm taking it on the bus. I'm taking it in the park. And I'm bringing it in the pizza shop. It's a loud, like literally loud expression of hip hop culture that also becomes
1: an easy target for people who like to complain about black culture in any form. Well, Mike, that is <laughs> that is an excellent point, and that's an excellent transition uh, because if we're going to talk about boomboxes, let's talk about Radio Rahim, and let's talk about do the right thing. Spike Lee & Company took over a block of Stuyvesant Avenue between Quincy and Lexington for six weeks in the summer of 1988, battling high temperatures the entire time. Visiting the film's pizzeria set for The Village Voice, Amy Taubin observed,
5: It's at least 100 degrees during the rehearsal. When the pizza oven goes on for the take, it heats up about 20 more.
1: Taubin also noted,
5: There are no stand-ins and no air-conditioned trailers to hide out in. Spike likes to hire actors for the entire shoot not just for the days they appear. So 22 people are constantly on call.
1: That combination of the actor availability and the single location is, I think, part of what makes the film seem so inhabited and its block so authentic. When I rewatch Do the Right Thing, I'm always catching a character in the background of a scene they're not even involved in, just living out their life. It's one of the things that gives the film its rich texture that block specifically. I asked Brandon Harris about that block.
4: Which, of course, is, and this is something that's never dealt with in the movie, but is right around the corner from, like, massive concrete housing projects that are very unforgiving. And I'm sure at that point in a New York City of 2,000 murders, a year less forgiving than they are now. And that poverty is something that you never really grasp in the movie. Uh, I, I don't think that, coming out of the 1980s at the tail end of the 1980s, anyone needed any more misery porn about the black community. You know, I think so much of the way that our images were contextualized to white and in general non-black America was essentially violent propaganda that, you know, our communities were overrun with drug-pushing super predators. So, you know, I, so I don't take umbrage with that representational choice so much. But I think when you are thinking about this, the geography of bed at that specific time in that specific block, that's something I think about, although, you know, it's like he's creating the bed of the mind in that film. Like, you know, it's not like he's literally like, well, Lexington Avenue in 1989 is like this, you know.
1: Finding a block that could accommodate the film's specific needs was not easy. Lee and production designer Wynn Thomas had to find a block with enough brownstones they could take over to use as characters' residences and as off-camera production offices. They needed a, a storefront with glass facing the street for the We Love Radio studio, and they needed two empty lots facing each other on the corner where they could build the bodega and Sal's famous pizzeria. And they had to build salves because at the end of the film, they had to burn it down. Uh, Spoiler warning, I guess. If if you haven't seen Do the Right Thing, and seriously, what the fuck, pause this and go watch Do the Right Thing. But if you haven't, this is how it goes. Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! Up So the film is set on that one block in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood of Brooklyn over roughly 24 hours, the hottest day of the year.
0: I have today's forecast for you. Hot! It is a well-known fact that in New York City, after 95 degrees, the murder rate goes up, spousal abuse. I mean, people just lose their minds in New York.
1: Spike Lee plays Mookie, delivery man for Sal's famous pizzeria, owned and operated by Sal, an Italian-American, and his two sons, Vito and Pino.
0: Close out. Vito. Yo, move! What
1: up? And we meet the various characters of the neighborhood. There's Mother Sister, who keeps watch over the block from her brownstone window and stoop. Be gentle,
3: child. Mother Sister's an old woman.
1: Her perpetual foil, the beer-swilling Demare.
5: But
4: you ask him a lot to make a man change his bill.
1: There's Smiley, an intellectually disabled man who walks the block selling the only known photo of Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
2: We still have
1: fight against the- p- hate There's the Korean-American couple that runs the corner bodega.
3: No more highlight. You
1: look
2: what we happened by.
1: The three corner men, who function as a kinda Greek chorus for the film.
2: Fuck Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson ain't Good. shit. I remember mean when he mugged that woman right there on Lexeter.
1: There's Radio Raheem, who walks the block with a boombox that only blasts public enemies fight the power.
2: Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand.
1: And bugging Out the neighborhood militant...
2: The black man has a loving heart.
1: ...who on this particular day notices something upsetting about the wall of photos inside Sal's famous pizzeria. But right there
0: you see on the wall pictures. All Italian-Americans. DiMaggio, Frank Sinatra. Pacino, Mazzelli, De Niro, Sinatra again. So, okay. Bugging Out wants war? to know. Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. See, that's and that's Sal's argument, too, which is valid. If you want, you if well, you want a black history. business, no American one is stopping on on huh? you from doing that. That's his prerogative. Don't stop me today. But also, Bugging Out thinks we support you.
4: You own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is
2: black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some sex.
0: Two valid points.
2: Trouble. Are you a troublemaker? Is that what you are? You making trouble? Yeah, I'm a troublemaker. I'm making trouble.
0: All this stuff's going to escalate as, a, as it gets hotter during the day.
1: And indeed it does. As tensions continue to simmer and microaggressions bubble up, Bugging Out attempts to organize a boycott of Sal's Famous. But there are only two takers, Smiley and Radio Rahim, who had his own conflict with Sal earlier in the day.
2: slice no service till you turn that shit off!
1: So they take their protest to Sal's at closing time.
2: What I, what I tell you about that? what I tell you about this? What the are you? fuck you. are you no there? Are you? you! We want the black she people on that, that motherfucker! motherfucker
1: and it quickly escalates. Right,
2: you black sucker I'll fucking tear your fucking nigger ass! Nigger! Nigger! I just killed your fucking radio.
1: And Radio Raheem come to blows. The brawl spills out onto the sidewalk.
0: Now, New York's finest comes. And right away, you know who they're going to grab. And this is where we see the infamous Michael Stewart chokehold.
1: The cops use their batons to put Radio Rahim in a chokehold. Lifting him into the air, choking the life out of him. The NYPD flees with bugging out and Radio Rahim's lifeless body in tow. The assembled crowd is stunned and furious.
6: Monkey. They killed him. They killed Radio Rahim. Murder!
2: They did it again, just like Michael Stewart. Murder! Eleanor Bumpers. Murder! Damn, man, it ain't safe in our fucking neighborhood. Never was. Never will be. We ain't gonna stand for this shit no more, Sal, you hear me? We ain't gonna stand for them fucking police, punk. It's as plain as day. They didn't have to kill the boy.
1: And so Mookie, who has watched all of this unfold, picks up a garbage can and throws it through the window of Sal's famous pizzeria. Is set.
6: Bring it down. Bring it down. They're
0: not saying Howard Beach, they're saying Coward Beach.
1: The fire department arrives, attempting to put out the fire, but also to disrupt the protest. And with that, the New York Fire Department turns their hoses on the black residents, deliberately echoing some of the most iconic and upsetting imagery of the civil rights movement. Sal's famous pizzeria burns to the ground. Smiley, still inside, carefully approaches the Wall of Fame and affixes his favorite photo to it of Malcolm X shaking hands with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
6: My
4: my dear friend Nick Pinkerton once pointed out in an article about Wesley Snipes that Spike Lee's style has always flirted with catastrophe
1: that's author brandon harris again
4: the expressionistic camera work the sort of exaggerated characterizations the fourth wall breaking the you know like that can always go wrong you know Like, and to be fair uh i think it has often especially lately but i think at that moment he was kind of at with the team he had built you know with barry alexander brown and Ernest Dickerson and and other figures, he was like at the peak of his game, you know, like I, I just think that movie from a stylistic standpoint, a production design standpoint, the cinematography, the sense of the heat of the day, it's really special.
1: And when the film debuted at the 1989 Cannes Film Festival, a fair number of critics agreed. It was in the running for the Palme d'Or, the festival's grand prize. But...
0: The world mean? premiere was in yeah, Cannes, and that's when the whole brew started, that's that the mean, films about. incite riots. Many journalists, many film critics were calling upon Tom Pollock, as the head of Universal Pictures not to release this film, or at the least, not release it in summer. It was their thinking that this film the sight riots.
1: You know, 30 plus years later, as Do the Right Thing has been accepted as not only a modern classic, but a clarion call for social justice. Reading those contemporaneous reviews and commentaries, all it should be noted from white male writers, it's just wild. It's this like whirlwind of alarmist warnings and and coded language, insisting that Spike Lee had made a film far more intolerant and incendiary than he had. It was amazing what some of the press was trying to do. They were trying to
0: whip up white hysteria. There was this thought that When this film comes out in the summer of 1989, black people are going to run amok.
1: Jack Kroll in Newsweek Magazine, July 3rd, 1989. It's called
0: The Fuse Has Been Lit.
3: Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing is the most controversial movie in many years. To put it bluntly, in this long, hot summer, how will young urban audiences black and white...
0: Black and white. He's trying to cover his ass right there. That's why he puts in black and white.
3: ...react to the film's climatic explosion of interracial violence. This incendiary subject, coupled with the brilliance of Lee's filmmaking talent, makes this question inescapable. People want to argue about this film for a long time. That's fine, as long as things stay on the arguing level. But this movie is dynamite under every seat. Sadly, the fuse has been lit by a filmmaker tripped up by muddled motives.
4: Were people actually reviewing the spook who sat by the door and they, they just didn't realize it?
5: It echoes so many common thoughts about what a lot of critics, especially older critics, think about the way people interact with movies and with TV and and violence.
1: This is Aisha Harris again.
5: And music. I mean, this is also around the same, or just like a couple years before you know, the two live crew and it's just so unfounded. And and, and obviously this is applied not just to to black youth. Uh, there were concerns about Marilyn Manson decades later and that like white people would listen to his music and become violent, but there's a particular sort of underlying racial factor here, just because we're always talking about protests by black people and coloring them in violent ways that they
3: aren't always violent.
1: David Denby, New York Magazine, June 26, 1989.
3: Do the Right Thing is going to create an uproar, in part because Lee, a middle-class black hoping to capture the anger of the underclass, is so thoroughly mixed up about what he's saying. He also wrote, If Spike Lee is a commercial opportunist, he's also playing with dynamite in an urban playground. The response to the movie could get away from him. And finally, He should be free to be dangerous, but Lee hasn't worked coherently. The end of this movie is a shambles, and if some audiences go wild, he's partly responsible.
5: So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's very unfortunate. It it ascribes this factor to Black people or Black audiences, this assumption that they are not smart enough or not controlled enough to see a movie and separate it from fiction in ways or, like, act upon it.
4: Um, Black people don't go to the movies and then get upset and riot. When has
5: that happened? You know, like, I, like, I, I mean, really? Yeah, that entire review is full of so many assumptions and also just a complete misunderstanding of what filmmaking is.
0: Now, do white owners go crazy at that time when they're going to see Terminator 1, Terminator 2? Films are that much more violent? But we're such mental midgets that we can't tell the difference between what's on screen and what's in real life.
1: And in that same issue of New York Magazine, Joe Klein, who would later write the Clinton campaign romano primary colors, examines the film through the lens of the upcoming mayoral primary, in which Ed Koch was facing African-American candidate David Dinkins for the Democratic nomination. Klein writes...
3: Dinkins will also have to pay the price for Spike Lee's reckless new movie about a summer race riot in Brooklyn, Do the Right Thing, which opens June 30th in not too many theaters near you, one hopes.
0: Now what the fuck is that? And not too many theaters near you? What he's saying, pray to God that this film does open your theater so niggas is going to go crazy.
3: That's what he's saying. That's the subtext. Of the climax, Klein fumes, It is Spike Lee himself, in the role of Sal's delivery man, who starts the riot by throwing a garbage can through the store's window, one of the stupider, more self-destructive acts of violence I've ever witnessed. If black kids act on what they see, Lee may have destroyed his career in that moment.
1: Oh, and um, by the way, it's worth noting, when contemplating Klein's description of this, quote, stupid, self-destructive act of violence, that nowhere in his piece does Joe Klein mention the murder of Radio Rahim. He thinks, Joe
0: Klein, asshole, he thinks one of the stupid, more destructive acts of violence he's ever witnessed in a film is when I throw a garbage can through a window. Now, does a window breathe? Does a, a window. Gas for its very last breath. And anytime I read a review by a critic and they talked about the loss of property, isn't it a shame that Sal's famous pizzeria was burned to the ground and he lost his business? He'd been there at stop for 20 something years, you know, providing a service to the community and not one word was written about the loss of life. So when you read something like that from the Jump Street, you
3: know where they're coming from, because in their estimation, it doesn't even up. Klein continues. If Lee does hook large black audiences, there's a good chance the message they take from the film will increase racial tensions in the city. If they react violently, which can't be ruled out, the candidate with the most to lose will be David Dinkins.
4: Obviously I think his analysis of the film is wrong, but I think his like political analysis might not be that far field, right? If do the right thing had started pol- like riots, right? Like let's assume that it had for some reason, which of course it didn't and never would, but had it. Yeah, I think like, you know, parts of New York in its various white ethnic communities uh, working class communities, as well as you know, Tony bankers and lawyers and, and society members and the upper side or something. I think they all would have probably felt like that 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 would that that would have made the Dickens campaign suffer. I su- I suspect, you know, I mean it, d- it didn't, and it never was. But yes, had that hard to imagine without an actual filmed act of police brutality like we saw in Los Angeles three years later happened.
1: Brandon Harris is right, of course. Do the Right Thing didn't cause riots, in New York City or anywhere else, when it opened on June 30th, 1989.
2: Your love daddy says, register to vote. The election is coming up.
1: And David Dinkins won the mayoral primary, ending Ed Koch's 12 year reign. But three years later, across the country, the three police officers facing felony criminal charges were among a group of
6: 15 who stopped a 25-year-old black man last Saturday night, then beat him, kicked him, and clubbed him, unaware that an amateur photographer was recording the incident on
1: videotape. And when those officers were acquitted by an all-white jury, LA exploded.
2: More objects being thrown.
1: Do the Right Thing didn't start that uprising, either. But it took the temperature of a culture where that kind of justified, destructive protest was not only possible, but probable. And yet...
0: People all over the world still come up to me and ask me, did Mookie do the right thing? I'm gonna be honest. Not one person of color has ever asked me that question.
1: That one question, did Mookie do the right thing, is startling in its myopia and its simplicity because it attempts to reduce the entirety of the film into a single decision by a single character rather than grappling with what leads him to make it. Because I've always felt the genius of do the right thing is that nobody does the quote unquote right thing. Not Mookie, not sound, not bugging out, certainly not the NYPD. But through this film, people who are basically good sometimes do the right thing and sometimes do the wrong things at the wrong moment. But that's just one reading. And what's great about a film like this is it allows plenty of readings.
5: I even think, like, I wonder if, like, if that's the right question because, like, the question is, what is the right thing? Not so much did everyone do it, but, like, what is that? Like, what are the right things to do? And, you know, I think that... Uh, he it, he's just really really good at pointing out without without evoking uh our president too much here but like uh, not just both sides but like all sides of things in a way that like suggests good faith and not in bad faith if that makes sense
4: i think that doing the right thing is pretty much impossible like everyone in the movie is set up to fail in a way And the closest anyone can get to doing the the groping toward finding the right way to treat each other is what Mookie and Sal are doing in in the picture's final scene.
0: Are you sick? I'm a motherfucker? I'm all right though. Well, they say it's even gonna get hotter today. What are you gonna do with yourself? Make that money, get paid.
4: And I don't think they get there, but they're at least aware that no one is better for what has happened. And for the, the term you just used, the myopia with which everyone's experiences were viewed, the lack of empathy with which everyone's experiences were viewed. And yet, at the end of the day, it was the white man that started the violence, that started the property destruction. And it was the agents of the state who killed an innocent black man in the street for no reason. And, you know, I don't know if you're a believer. (laughs) I don't know if eye for an eye means anything to to you, you know, but uh, it means a lot to a lot of people. And uh, vengeance is one of the more animating forces in the human character. Sad to say. And a lot of people are acting out of that then and now because, of the failure of imagination to think through what renewal, what remuneration, what reparations, what can our society be? If we'd like, think about it, not outside of the box of like America, you know, a 240-odd-year-old institution, but like, let's just think as if the box never existed. That's how much of a ground-up rethinking the country needs, so that things like, you know, in fiction, South Pizzeria, or in reality, the Wendy's where Rashad Brooks was killed don't burn to the ground.
1: Contrary to the simplistic readings of its early reviewers, Spike Lee's film humanizes and complicates stories like these. the, The heroes and villains are mostly clear in the King beating or Michael Stewart's death, or the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. But Lee makes his characters more complicated than that. Especially, you know, I rewatched
5: it just, you know, just recently in in the wake of all these protests that are currently happening uh, after George Floyd's death. And this was the first time actually that I, I cried uh, at the end. Um, I'd never cried before, but I think the how visceral and how similar the ending with radio rahim is just like brought something out of me and this is actually the first time so I've always also had this thing with Radio Rahim, where I'm like some of the stuff he does is like really annoying <laughs> like if I knew him in real life I would be like dude why like there's that scene where he's blasting the music and he passes the, the Latinos who are sitting and they're like turn your stuff down and he just like keeps turning it up over their music and I'm just like this is really obnoxious like <laughs> why is he doing this and then of course there's the other scene in the, the bodega with the Asians couple and you know he's he's mocking the way they speak english and he just like he's just like 20 D energizers
3: 20 c energizers
2: d not c d
3: c energizers d
5: motherfucker d learn to speak english first all right d he's swearing at them and he's just like super aggressive and i'm just like dude is Like, a lot to deal with. But then this was the first time, and I think I've always sensed this, but this was the first time where I was like, that was the point for Spike, I think, is that he wasn't supposed to be this perfect person. The whole point is that, like, it
1: shouldn't matter. And on the flip side, Lee easily could have made Pino, Sal's viciously racist son, into the instigator but instead it's Sal who escalates the conflict and instigates physical violence, and who is up to that point a mostly sympathetic character, traditionally tolerant, coded liberal.
2: But What can I say? I don't want to be here. They don't want us here. We should stay in our own neighborhood, stay in Bensonhurst, and the niggas should stay in this. I never
3: had no trouble with these people. I sat in this one day. I watch these little kids get old. And i seen the old people get older. Yeah, sure, some of them don't like us, but most of them do. I mean, for Christ's sake, you know, they grew up on my food. On my food. And I'm very proud of that.
5: These people eat my food, and, like, you know, there's so much loaded in the term these people. But at the same time, you understand, like, Sal is coming from a place of, like, He doesn't mean it the way he means it, but he does mean it the way he means it. It's there's just so many layers to it. And and it's like this weird patriarchal benefactor sort of aspect to it. But at the same time, it also makes you kind of sympathize with Sal. Uh,
4: You know, I I think that it kind of comes down in a sort of middle ground, right? You know, it's sort of you're supposed to feel a little bad for Sal and you're kind of supposed to feel like it they probably still should have burned his, his pizzeria down. Sal, in the midst of that argument, destroys someone else's property, who then is killed by the police. And, you know, I think this is a question that a lot of white people are thinking about now, maybe for the first time, right? Like, how should we think about rioting when, vis-a-vis activism? Or like, what? where should censure fall You know, in that kind of circumstance, like and I I don't think that the movie necessarily advocates writing per se, but I do think that it it suggests that there's an ambiguity to these matters that is essentially American.
1: It is it's my favorite movie. So, Jamil Smith is a senior writer for Rolling Stone magazine. He wrote their recent and excellent cover story, The Power of Black Lives Matter.
2: I saw Do the Right Thing on actually the hottest day of the summer. <laughs> you know, I'm 13 years old, or mm-hmm. right, about to uh, turn 14, and my grandmother and I, uh, decided to go see a movie, and we are in this kind of decrepit part of New Orleans, and I'll, I'll never forget it because it looked kind of like a uh, a ballroom kind of theater. It looked like kind of like a a regular sort of a uh, Broadway kind of style where you know you sit and like the seats kind of run down towards the stage, which thinking back upon it was actually perfectly appropriate for this to, for this movie because this movie really to me is very theatrical in in that and that pure sort of Broadway sense. but my grandmother and I go in and sit down and I watch a movie that uh, changes my life, the very first movie I think that changed my life. I was not a kid who i I would say, I don't know heavily identified with who he was as a, a young black kid. I mean I was in hip hop because my cousins introduced me to it. They made sure I got that education. I was you know aware of who I was as a black person moving through the world, but I was not really conscious of what black reality was outside of my bubble in Shaker Heights, Ohio. You know, I didn't understand what police brutality was. I didn't understand who Michael Stewart and Eleanor Bumpers were. I didn't know what a chokehold was until I saw it put on Radio Raheem. Um, I didn't know that fear until that moment was depicted on film. And when I walk out of that theater, I bought my very first African medallion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I <was>
2: hot, boy.
1: <laughs> one of the things, as we've delved into, you know, research some of the reviews and commentary at the time, and I think one of the things that frustrated critics White critics, especially when the film came out, was that it didn't offer an easy solution. You know what I mean? It provides like Mm -hmm. cause and effect. And I also think that's one of the reasons that it stood the test of time, because art that tries to offer a fix often does not age well. And I thought about this when I was reading your cover story, that you're describing the arc of Black Lives Matter movement, that first one has to raise awareness, and then once you have attention, then you can present solutions. Like, is that, is, is that a fair comparison? Is that sort of how we should look at this film now in terms of, of, of awareness? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing about
2: art. I don't think art is about solving things. I think art is about presenting reality and interpreting reality. There are some there are some pieces of art that are meant to stand the test of time. I think this is one of them. I think this is one of them because I mean, you listen to one of the very first things that's spoken in the film is Smiley, you know, talking about Dr. King and Malcolm X. You know, they are dead, but we are still meant to fight against the part hate. Like that could have been said yesterday.
3: Is there something different about the experiences of it's just the last thirty years since this movie came out, right? Either all the publicity, because the the actions are not different than lynching, then right? It's kind of the same but but we're having are we having a different experience of it? Is social media or the kind of growth of like the language, the way we talk about this stuff that has been really formed by activists and people who've been paying attention to this and feeling the effects of it for a long time. Is there something different now than when Spike Lee made this movie? Can we have some sort of an answer now that he didn't have available to him?
2: I think that the, the way that we communicate now affects how we form solutions. I think certainly social media is you know uh, a factor in that. I think certainly the... Uh, how money, you know is is you know an increasingly damaging factor in our society, you know is a factor in that? I think that uh, just the internet period, you know, not just social media, you know the, the the availability of information is 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 an incredible factor in that. I mean, we, you know young people can access all kinds of history. Um, and in articles and media and, and video that they could never have dreamed of. We, we could never have dreamed of at that age. I mean, at the time that this came out, you know, I was in eighth grade going into ninth. I, I could never, you know, <laughs> gone on to YouTube or, 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 or communicate with my classmates in an instant, you know. Tested. I mean, you know, if somebody had a phone line in their bedroom, they were like the shit. (laughs) (laughs) Right. To me, it's you. You just have to think about how the escalation and speed of communication affects just not how not how we think, but what we're thinking about. And in terms of if the problems don't change, or you know, the problems in fact escalate because. You think about like this is you know the, the end, you know, the, the tail end of the Reagan era. You know, the the money has just started to flow into policing. Right. That is now making police um, the militarized armies that we now see today. You notice in the film, you know, none of those police are wearing body armor. You know, none of those police are wearing riot gear. Can you imagine now the response to what would have happened at South Pizzeria? Mm. In the modern era, there would have been tanks rolling up that street. There would have been tear gas. There would have been guys with helmets and shields. Those folks wouldn't have stood a chance. Right. Okay. We're not talking about one dead kid. Okay. We're talking about possibly several. Okay. And so we're thinking about, we got to think about how. The money, has, you know, that has flowed into our governments and into our policing, um, has actually potentially metastasized the very problems that Spike was talking about in this film, and how the you know the fact that the attitudes really haven't changed; they've remained stagnant. And we're not just talking about pinos outright and in, in blatant racism. We're talking about Sal's latent racism that emerges only in moments of crisis. Mm-hmm. That to me is really the danger he's warning about. Because to me, as a kid, that that was that was truly frightening. You're like, wait a minute, this was the nice white man. And now all of a sudden, oh, here's what you really think. We niggas now. We niggas now. Okay. And and it just it, it, it gave me, at 13, going into high school, public high school, a new lens on whiteness. It didn't make me mistrust every white person <laughs> that I encountered. Right. I later went to Penn, for goodness sakes. But I, I certainly understood that that was a possibility that I had not yet entertained.
1: I've talked a lot with our guests on this episode about the title and the degree to which people in the film do and do not do the right thing that, at that moment, in this moment, in our history, in this struggle, what does it mean to do the right thing?
2: First thing is first think critically about yourself first and foremost, about what you're doing, but also about the world around you and Reject those who would deny you, deny your humanity, deny your right to exist, deny the your autonomy, you know, and deny your citizenship. That, that to me, it starts there um, because, I mean, really, that's where Black Lives Matter. Those words start. Um, and it's really the, the, the baseline demand. But we have to get beyond baseline demands um, because, I mean, time is running out. We have a climate crisis that is in- increasingly urgent. We have a, a voting crisis in this country you know, that is threatening our democracy. So these are things that we need to urgently address and handle um, because there are people who are, are, are grasping the opportunity to corrupt what we have for their own benefit. There are people who understand the finite nature of a democracy in this world, and they are taking advantage of it. So to me, doing the right thing means doing the right thing by humanity so that we can all survive and thrive as long as possible.
0: Mookie threw the garbage can through the window, in my eyes, and I'm the author of this, because he just saw his best friend, Ray Rahim, get murdered by New York City's finest, NYPD. And here it is 10 years later, and they are still doing the same thing. When we did this film, we were talking about Michael Stewart, Elna Bumpers, Mouse Louima and Diallo. So not a lot has changed. This
5: is Utica Avenue. Transfer is available to the C Train. Transfer. To the V46 Select
1: Bus Service. I'm in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, standing at the corner of Lexington and Stuyvesant. Though for this block, Stuyvesant is known as Do the Right Thing Way. That's because this is the block where Spike Lee and Company shot the movie that summer of 1988. And this is the corner where they built Sal's famous pizzeria. There's a mural painted on, on one of the walls here with the, the Do the Right Thing logo, and uh, portraits of, of actors we've lost in the years since. Ozzie Davis, Ruby Dee, Bill Nunn, Robin Harris, Frank Vincent, you know, some of the block looks exactly as it does in the film, uh, the welcoming brownstones, the, these brightly colored murals painted on brick walls across the way, and some of it has changed as any New York block has in 30 plus years, thanks to a shifting cityscape and aggressive gentrification. But too much of what Do the Right Thing was about, too much of the stories that inspired Spike Lee to write it and that caused so much of the uproar around it, you know, that hasn't changed at all. In his early films, Spike Lee didn't always draw lines and name names connecting his narratives to the real world as explicitly as he does in more recent works like Black Klansmen, Chirac, and The Five Bloods. But at the end of Do the Right Thing, a card appears with these words, Dedicated to the families of Eleanor Bumpers, Michael Griffith, Arthur Miller, Edmund Perry, Yvonne Smallwood, Michael Stewart. All of them were black people, victims of racist violence in New York, many at the hands of the NYPD. And as the years have passed since the film's release, that list has only grown longer. Yusuf Hawkins, Jose Garcia, Anthony Baez, Patrick Dorismond, Usman Izongo, Timothy Stansberry, Sean Bell, Michael Minio. Remarley Graham, Kyem Livingston, Kamani Gray, Delron Small, Eric Garner. That's not all of them. There are many more, too many more, hundreds more, and those are just people who were murdered by the NYPD as we mourn their lives And those of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Laquan McDonald, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, Sandra Bland, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, Ahmaud Arbery, Rayshard Brooks, Breonna Taylor, Dion Johnson, and George Floyd. None of the questions Spike Lee asks and do the right thing have been answered. Demare says,
2: always do the right thing.
1: And Mookie nods. Mookie nods in agreement. He doesn't say what the right thing is, and neither does Spike Lee. But that's not his job. That's our job now. So let's get to work. From Fun City, I'm Jason Bailey. Fun City Cinema is inspired by the forthcoming book Fun City Cinema, New York and the Movies That Made It, out in fall 2021 from Abram's Books.
3: Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey. And produced and co-hosted by my friend Mike Hole. Special thanks to today's guests. You can read Aisha
1: Harris at the New York Times and follow her on Twitter at Crafting My Style. Brandon Harris's excellent book is titled Making Rent in Bedsty, and you can pick that up wherever books and ebooks are sold.
3: While you're there, pick up John Pearson's Essential Chronicle of the Indie Scene, Spike, Mike, Slackers, and Dykes.
1: And you can read Jameel Smith at Rolling Stone and follow him on Twitter, at Jameel Smith. Thanks to Rebecca Bernhard
3: for coordinating that
1: interview. Additional special thanks to Rebecca Dryden, who edited the script and appeared as Amy Taubin. Our website is www.funcitycinema.com. And if you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced on today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at FunCityCinema.
3: And if you like this podcast and would like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at www.patreon.com
1: FunCityCinema. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Jason. And thank you for listening.
0: Stories in the Naked City. This has been one of them. Still
2: want to move back to Massachusetts? I was born in Brooklyn.